You are listening to the Hope Fellowship Church Podcast. To find more information about our church and ministries, check out our website at hopeandanderson.com. Now, this week's teaching. Good morning, Hope family. My name is Drew Howard. I've been attending Hope for eight years. Um, Please stand for today's reading. Our passage for today is Judges chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kedesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, Barak, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak got out to Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Habab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pinched his tent as far away as the oak in Zananim, which is near Kadesh. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah, let's 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 give it up, baby. Oh my goodness! Well, good morning. I gave him that, so I didn't have to say any of those words, but you would at least be able to hear it read. Uh, so I'm not touching those words at all. Uh, if you would turn in your Bibles or turn on your devices to Judges chapter four, where I want us to be this morning. I'm honored to be up here again. That Mark didn't fire me after last week's sermon or anything like that. And what I want us to notice from Drew's impeccable reading and what we've already walked through in this series of the book of Judges is both the predictable and unpredictable pattern emerging. Othniel's story, the first judge, provides us with this predictable pattern of judges that each subsequent judge will follow throughout the book of Judges. The one where Israel's doing what is evil, God gets mad and raises up an enemy to enslave them or oppress them. Then Israelites cry out, then God raises up a judge. Then the judge delivers Israel, they have rest, and they do it again and again and again over and over. It's the predictable pattern that Othniel sets up that every judge will follow. But then immediately after Othniel with Ehud, we then see this unpredictable way in which that rest for Israel is achieved. Again, you have a fat king who dies by pooping out, which then throws his people into confusion, allowing the Israelites to come in and win. It is an unconventional method to achieve peace and rest that is, dare we say, grossly different from Othniel's method of achieving rest for his people. 
And while Ehud shows us that the pattern stays the same for the Israelites and for the people who are putting or not putting their faith in God, it will not be as predictable as to how someone goes about delivering the Israelites out of their enslavement. And so what we're going to see is that each week judges and each judge will get more and more unpredictable in the ways in which they achieve rest. And Samuel, the author, does this purposefully as he's not structuring the book of Judges chronologically from point A to point Z and, and throughout history. He's structuring the book situationally because he's trying to show the deterioration of Israel's faith as they continue to put their faith in idols and eventually causing the infection of sin to spread. And it brings us to our judge this morning, Deborah, who is here following the predictable pattern of judges. They've done what is evil. They're sold into King Jabin's hand and the Canaanites. And he has this evil commander, Sisera, who has 900 iron chariots and he's cruel in his oppression of them. And they cry out and then they raise up and God raises up a judge named Deborah. But then the way that God delivers his people is unpredictable. And actually, we won't see another judge do it the way that Deborah does it. And God does it through Deborah here. You don't have to worry. It's not through any pooping or anything like that. Instead, Deborah gives a new dynamic to the way that rest is achieved in that it's not going to be achieved by just one singular person. It's going to be achieved by three different individuals who we see to be Deborah, Barack, or not Obama. It's, I just had to say it because I know all of us were thinking of it in the room. It's why we want to go Barrack. So we'll just say Barrack from now on so nobody's thinking Barack Obama. And then the third is Jael. So you have Deborah, Barrack, and Jael. And what I want us to do this morning is to walk through each of those three characters and see how each of them are actually pointing us to a fact that while there are a lot of characters in this story. And there's a lot of moving parts in this story. All of these things are funneling us into one character of the story that should be our focus, and that is God. All of these characters, especially Deborah, Barak, and Jael, are showing us that there is only one main character in this story and in every story, and that is God. So if you would, let's start in Judges 4.4, where we're introduced to our fourth judge, Deborah. It says, now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. Deborah is a fourth, the fourth judge, and she actually provides a breath of fresh air because in the midst of a, a ton of seemingly idiotic judges, we get a wise and godly mature person who God has raised up to deliver his people. And different from all of her counterparts, not only is she wise and mature and godly, but obviously and most differently, she is a woman. Now, hopefully, God using women to advance his kingdom more into this world is not a shocking thing for us. We are not short of famous Old Testament women or New Testament women. But what is different in Deborah's case that should stand out to us is that this is one of the first times in Scripture we see a woman in such a crucial and leading role as hers. We see that she's not only just a judge, a deliverer or savior of Israel, but she's also a prophet, someone who is receiving and knowing and preaching and teaching and speaking the words of God over the entirety of his people, not just women and children, but both men and women. 
A lot of people find this to be more upsetting that God uses a woman than God using a sex-addicted a sex addicted Nazarite or a man who cowardly gives up his concubine to be chopped up into bits to save his whole life. But that's not really the point. The point is, however, that God here is using a woman to communicate, to teach, to deliver, and to save his people, which makes us have to pause for a moment. Because people with different theological convictions about how God uses women in this world... They conform this text to fit their position. So just to speak very quickly, because I don't want this to become a sermon about women in ministry, but to the people who are on one side thinking that women cannot be in ministry, they usually read Judges 4, and they say, well, no man was willing to step up. And this kind of shows the leadership crisis in Israel because no man was able to do this. And so God had to send a woman to uh, make things better. And and she just kind of had to step up and step into this role. And while this is a very cute explanation, it is not a valid one. As we see that this would go counter to the way in which God raises up judges. And as he has said, he would do to each an individual judge. Judges 2, 16, it says, Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of those who plundered them. As a judge, you could not just step into it because no one else was doing it. You were chosen and appointed and raised up by God to be a deliverer of his people. And if that's not enough, we also see that she is a prophetess or a prophet. And again, no one was just made a prophet. You couldn't just become a prophet. You couldn't just will yourself to hear the words of God. We see in Deuteronomy 18 verses 15 and 18 through 19, it says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, It is to him you shall listen. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Again, this is not something you can just choose to do willy-nilly. It is not someone who's just stepping up because no one else is doing it. It is someone who God has chosen to give his words to, to be a vessel of, to communicate those to other people. And so again, God is appointing a woman, Deborah, not just because no other man was stepping up, but because God specifically chose her. And then on the other side, though, you have people who then are saying, well, then anything a man can do, a woman can do too. And they usually read Judges 4 with this idea of female empowerment. And, and man, this is, a, a, this is all of these things that we're trying to communicate all the time. And while it is a story about a powerful, and in fact, two powerful pillars who are women in this story, who are equipped and chosen and who do the delivering work of God and of the Israelites... It's not the focus, nor is it the intended message, because the reality is that women cannot do all that men can do, and vice versa, and take a sigh of relief, men cannot do everything a woman can do. If we say, and we take this and say, well, anything a man can do, a woman can do too, or anything a woman can do, a man can do too, then what we are doing is destroying the very reason why God created two separate genders, We have been created as separate and distinct and equal genders for a very specific reason. There's a reason why God said, male and female, I have created them. There's a reason why we are fighting to say that there are only two sexes and you cannot just slip into one or the other. It's not this fluid thing. And it's because God has a very specific and listen, a very powerful vision For both men and women that are equal to one another, but are not equivalent with one another. We're distinct, not just in physical parts. Hopefully any person can realize that. 
but we're also distinct in the ways in which our souls have been wonderfully wired by God. And oftentimes, our physical distinctions are examples of the inner soul distinctions that we have from one another. One example is being able to breastfeed. And I bring this up, not to make anyone uncomfortable, but because in the last 11 months, or I guess almost a year, Tatum's almost a year old, which is kind of wild to think about, Cassie has had a lot of words for God as to why he's not allowing men to be able to breastfeed. Because we have the things necessary to do it, but they're just sitting there kind of useless in her words, not mine. And so she's, when she gets to heaven, it's not going to be, did Adam have a belly button or man, predestination, free will. She's going to be like, why did you make men not be able to breastfeed? And while we've had, I, I've just sat and listened to her vent. I, it's not been a debate. I've, I'm smarter than that. What we really start to see is that physical distinction is because God has wired women to have a degree of nurturing and compassion and tenderness that men just don't have. And there are outliers, and don't hear me that there aren't outliers, and don't think that you're sitting there weird because you don't, you're, not, you're a woman and you don't feel like you're really compassionate or you're a man and you are really compassionate. That, that's absolutely fine. But in God's wiring of his unique creation, he has given women... One of the things he has given women is a capacity and a calling to nurture, to respond to the hurting, to mourn with those who mourn, to have empathy when no one else will have empathy, to be tender, loving, and to exemplify God's tender, loving care to his people in the way in which they get to nurture and maintain and sustain their own children. They get to have this intimate experience with children that men will just never be able to be, be able to experience, not just because we're wired physically differently, but because our souls have been wired differently. We are equal to one another in every way, shape, and form, but we are not equivalent. We have the same calling, but we achieve that calling through different means to the end. And the reality is that if we just say everything's the same, nothing is different, we actually will be lacking. Because only when we are together will we be portraying the full image of God in all of his beauty and fullness. Only when we have the picture of a man and a woman together will we be able to portray the full character and nature of God that we see and display in Scripture. And so we cannot use this story as ammunition to defend our secondary or tertiary theological convictions. Judges is a compilation of stories that do not tell what ought to happen. They are simply stories that have told us what did happen. So we shouldn't just go out and assassinate a king. We shouldn't give up our concubine to bad people to save our lives. Hopefully we don't even have a concubine in our lives. And likewise, this is not a story that we get to say, see, she just had to step up. It's a leadership crisis. See, anything a man can do, a woman can do as well. This is a story that simply shows that throughout history and for all history, God will use who God wants to use to deliver and to save and to teach his people about himself. Her gender is not the reason or is not the reason why God would not use her. It is simply because, as we see, she was devoted wholly to the Lord. She was a prophetess. She was devoted to the words of God. 
She was devoted to the things of God. She listened to God and she took God at face value. And because of this, because of her devotion and dedication to him in the midst of a disloyal people, God raises her up and chooses her and appoints her as judge of Israel. This is important for us this morning because we should not be looking at this text saying and using this text of a, can women be a minister? Can women not be asking? The thing that this text and the thing that Deborah should be causing us to ask ourselves is, are we as devoted and dependent on the word as she is? Are we willing to speak the word no matter what in the midst of cruel oppression as she was? How dependent are we on the words that God has spoken? How seriously do we take what's been written in Scripture? 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 reminds us that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Friends, this is not just some historical text. This is not a compilation of fantastical and crazy stories. This is not a text to be studied or learned or mastered. This is not just a a book filled with good advice for living better in a terrible world. It is the inspired word of God. It is God revealing himself to us in sure and true ways so that we don't have to guess, is that God speaking to us or is that just the food that I ate last night? It's the infallible and flawless word of God that we have before us. And I think I myself forget that at times. Or I myself envy people like Moses who got to hear God speaking through a burning bush or or through other people who got to hear God speaking through a donkey or any of those other cool stories. And I'm just sitting there going, God, I wish you would just speak to me like you spoke to them. And I'm forgetting that we have more words of God. We have more promises of God. We have more fulfilled prophecies of God. We have more verbal written words of God than Abraham, Moses, the prophets, and Deborah did. And yet we aren't nearly as dependent and devoted on them as they were. And we treat this text more often than not as something to be mastered and studied rather than something to be mastered by. Do we view scripture like Deborah views God's word? She lived by the word. She spoke the word and only the word. She was surrendered to the word and she led by the word. She was empowered She spoke it, and she empowered others with it. We see this clearly in verse 6. When she sends and summons Barak and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river of Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give them into your hand. Here, the attention now shifts from Deborah onto this second character, Barak, who's not the appointed or raised up judge, but who is the one who God uses and chooses to do the physical work of delivering his people. And it actually kind of seems when we're reading this that it's about to just be another cut and dry story. Deborah's just communicated, hey, God said, the battle's already been won. Remember last week, the battle's already been won. All you have to do is act as if that were true and go and, and actually go and fight and just trust that God has given it into your hands. It's looking like this is going to be the same as Othniel and Ehud and Shamgar and all these other judges who just kind of obey that, that uh, statement. But instead of obedience from Barak, Instead, we get him making a conditional statement for insurance in verse 8 when he says, If you will go with me, I will go. 
but if you will not go with me, I will not go. At face value, as we're introduced to this second character that we need to look at for a moment, it does not look like Barak's best moment in life. But before we start throwing stones at him, just put yourselves in Barak's shoes. Here comes a woman summoning you who's a trusted advisor and a trusted prophet in your community. But she tells you that God, the same God who's seemingly been absent for the last 20 years, has now supposedly decided to act. And he's not just acting, he's actually choosing you to act against this ruthless, powerful, and unbeatable army of the Canaanites. And it's not just going to be as easy as that. It's going to be, you're going to be in a terrible territory for it. Chariots in an open plain against foot soldiers, not a good mix. You're going to put yourselves in against all odds. You're going to be facing 900 iron chariots, which is basically the equivalent, equivalent of 10,000 unarmed naked people going to fist fight 900 tanks. That's as best as I can frame it for us this morning. That's how terrible of a situation and uneven of a situation this was. Everything is pointing that there is no possible way that this could even happen. And yet he makes this conditional statement. And I'd say before we throw stones, we'd probably react similarly. We would say, okay, I'll do it, but I need some insurance here. I know that because I've asked God for that kind of insurance for a lot less than what was being asked of him here. All right, God, I will read my Bible in the morning. I am feeling convicted to do so. But just to make sure that it's what you really want me to do, I'm not going to set my alarm. And if you want me to do it, wake me up early enough so I can actually read my Bible. Or, all right, I, I know I'm supposed to be praying for that person. Uh, I, I know I need to walk over to them and actually just start praying for them. I'm feeling that conviction, but I need something a little bit more than that. In the spiritual realm, could you just put a blinking arrow over them just to just let me know this is the person that you want me to pray for them? All the time we say things like, God, if you would just speak to me in a burning bush, then I would do it. God, if you would just do this, then I would believe. And what we're really saying to God is, I need something more than just your word. And when God's word is not enough for us to do the things that he is asking us to do, even when he is assuring us, I have given the enemy into your hand, it is because we are not completely trusting him. When his word's not enough, our trust is in something else. And for Barak, his trust was in Deborah. His trust was in the prophet. We've talked a lot about idols in this series so far, but not yet have we had an example of the idolatry of leadership. One commentator speaks to this by imagining and expounding on Deborah's response to Barak. This is in the words of Deborah saying, Was it not the Lord who promised that he would give Sisera into your hand? My role as a prophet was just to speak the Lord's word to you. The power lay in the promise, not the prophet. When you refused to go unless I accompanied you, it revealed that your confidence was in me, not God's word. By trusting my presence for victory more than God's promise, you gave the messenger more glory than the message. It made me an idol. That was the evil. God kept his promise to you because he is always faithful. But because you took glory away from him and gave it to another, he took glory away from you and gave it to another. Your confidence was in the prophet, not the promise. 
This is one of the main reasons why I didn't want to be a pastor. One, because I saw what it did to my dad. He went bald really quickly, and here we are. Two, I knew my own tendency to be a people pleaser and do things to make people like me. But third, and most honestly, I wasn't sure if I was humble enough to be in a position where there was this kind of power and platform. Because I know myself, I know my own tendency, I know the tendency of people is to see people who have this kind of platform and place them on a pedestal, whether it is someone of a local church or whether it's an F-list Christian celebrity like John MacArthur, John Piper, John Tyson, John Mark Comer, a lot of Johns in ministry, Mark Driscoll, Francis Chan, or anyone else that we watch or follow or listen to, and we elevate them to a place where we're no longer just trying to imitate them, but we are idolizing every single word that comes out of their mouth as God's word. And all around us, we're seeing situations of pastoral scandals, pastors caught in adultery, pastors stealing money, pastors abusing power. And at the same time, all around us, we are seeing an exodus of people from the faith because of these things. And what it is showing is that these people didn't have faith in God. It was in their pastor or their church or a system and structure. It was found in the prophet, not the promise. We idolize people that we are only called in scripture to imitate. Paul makes it very clear in 1 Corinthians 11.1 1, saying, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He's not saying, hey, put your faith in my faith. He, he's not saying, I've got this completely down. You just need to do exactly as I do for all of time. What he is saying is copy what I'm doing now so that you can learn how to engage and abide in his presence later. It's how we learn as people. We learn by stealing from people around us and making it our own. And so we're called to imitate one another's phase. We're called to imitate the phase of those who are more sanctified and more holy and more pure than us. But we have to be careful because if we are not careful, our imitation will always become idolatry. We'll start having too high of expectations for humans that we would never place on ourselves. We start having too much faith in this one person. We start just being way too dependent on a person rather than the promise. And it's a temptation for anyone. If any of you have ever discipled someone or you are discipling someone or someone looks up to you, it is a temptation to take credit or when they say, man, I wish I was just more like you. The temptation is to go, yeah, you should be. It is tempting. And yet what we are to be doing is saying, do as I do, as I myself, as Paul will say later, copy Christ. If you want to actually have a faith like mine, don't copy me. Just copy Christ. But too often we make idols of those who are leading well. Too often we make idols of those who are humble. When a leader says, no, I don't really want any of the recognition, we go, oh, he needs more recognition. He's so sweet. He's so humble. And we place them on pedestals. This was the case for Barak. He has made an idol of Deborah, which then he needs Deborah there at the battle more than he needs assurance, promise, and presence of God. But here's the beauty of this. Instead of rebuking him, Deborah responds in verse 9 and she says, I will surely go with you. The immediate response from her is, okay, I'll go with you. 
Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of the woman. The consequence for having a faith that needed insurance was not that the battle was going to be lost and Israel no longer delivered. The consequence was that he was now not going to get the glory, honor, or recognition of doing the saving work of Israel. And I think this is why Barak's faith is complicated. And I think it's also why Barak's faith is recognized in Hebrews 11 and 12 as one that we should be commending. Because in spite of a faith that needed insurance, in spite of not getting any recognition, he still has the faith to go. He still obeys. There is now nothing in it for himself. And yet he still goes. I think we give Barak a bad rap because of the conditions that he's placed, but this is encouraging for me to see that even in the midst of not getting anything, even in the midst of doubting, he is humble enough to still go. It is a humble faith. And it's encouraging because even though he needs insurance, God gives him insurance. Deborah gives him insurance. That God gives us insurance so that we would have the assurance to do what he is telling us to do. I think of Exodus thirty-three, fifteen. Moses has just spoken to God face to face as a friend does. And God has just promised him all these things that are going to happen. And then Moses says, excuse me, Moses says in Exodus thirty-three, fifteen, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. He's just had face to face encounter with God telling him everything's going to be all right. Just go. And he says, if you don't go, I'm not going. Or I think of Jesus in John chapter 15 when he doesn't just leave us with all these promises, but he says, I'm going to give you a helper to equip and empower and make you steadfast in these things. I am going to give you insurance in this life so that you don't just have a blind faith. Friends, we are not called to have a blind faith that just believes randomly. We have proof in this faith. God gives us a lot of insurance, mainly in the character of Christ, so that we can have confidence in him. And so what God does here is he gives Barak insurance through Deborah. Deborah goes with Barak. They rout the enemies against all odds, killing every single one of them except for one man that we see fleeing the scene in Judges 4, 17 through 21. Read with me. But Sisera, the commander of the Canaanite army, fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, our third character, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside. Do not be afraid. She's saying, Come in, come in, I will keep you safe. And so he trusts her, and he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. She's making him cozy. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I'm thirsty. And she does something better. She opens a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him, something that was surely to put him to sleep. And he said to her, hey, can you stand at the opening of the tent? And if anyone comes in and asks you, is anyone here? Could you say no? Jael, the wife, we can assume, probably said yes. And in verse 21, we see, but Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. She went softly to him, not to sing lullabies, and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground. While he was lying fast asleep from weariness. And maybe the most unnecessary three words in scripture. So he died. (laughs) God, I hope so. (laughs) It's details are important in the book of Judges. (laughs) He is dead because there is now a tent peg sticking through his skull. 
Notice the echoes of Ehud here. Very similar, both killing in private, both lying to do so, both doing it in a dishonorable way. But Jael's dishonor takes the cake over Ehud. Because where Jael starts to veer from the story of Ehud is that Jael kills an ally. The Canaanites and the Canaanites were allies. So when Sisera comes upon her tent, he's going, oh my gosh, thank you, all my gods, because now I have safety. This is an ally. They will take care of me. Not only that, she invited him in as a guest. If you invited someone in in ancient times as a guest, this person was now more important and more valuable than yourself. Not only that, he was completely defenseless. He was sound asleep. She made him comfy and cozy. And to put icing on the cake, she stripped him not only of his life, but also his pride and dignity and honor. Because again, in ancient times, to be killed by a woman was shameful. And to be killed by a tent peg would have been equally shameful. Tent peg, uh, setting up and taking down of tents was considered the work of women. So essentially, she killed him with a woman's household appliance. This woman is brutal. By any culture's standards... This was not just unconventional. This was shameful and disgraceful, what she did. Not even to say she breaks at least five of the Ten Commandments that God tells us to follow. And again, it makes us ask the question, how is this woman commended in Scripture? In Judges 5 that Mark will be teaching on next week, they actually call her the most blessed woman. The only other woman in Scripture that is called that is Mary, who is the mother of Christ. So you got Mary, the mother of Christ, and Jael, the person who drove a tent peg into his skull. Most blessed woman right there. Doesn't get any better than that. And we start to go, am I supposed to admire this? Am I supposed to imitate this in my own life? Definitely not, Andrew. But what we need to understand this morning is that God is showing us that he will work through the most shameful and sinful actions for his glory and for the good of those who love him. What you should see on repeat in Judges is God's power and how powerful he is that it doesn't matter what we do, he will use it for his good because it is not about what we can do. It's not about how perfect and righteous and faith we are. It's not about who we are. It's not about what we've done. It is and always will be and always has been about the God who has all the power to work through all the things and in all things to do one thing and one thing alone and that is to be glorified. In all things, God is working to receive glory, to amplify his character and nature. And because of that, he will always work through that which is shameful, that which is sinful, that which is saint-like. No matter where it is on the spectrum, he will use it because it's not about our offering. It's about the God. It's not about the prophet. It's about the power. The kingdom of God does not consist in speech. The kingdom of God does not consist in works. The kingdom of God consists in power. And this is this story. The focus is split between three different individuals because what Samuel is trying to show us throughout the whole book of Judges and in all the scope of Scripture is that our focus shouldn't be on any one person. The credit doesn't go to any one person or any one leader or any one king, but to only and completely one God. The one judge who is to come. The one king who rules and reigns forever. The one who has saved humanity and those who believe in him. It's not Deborah that calls Barak. 
It's God, verse six. She says, has not God says, or does not the Lord go before you? It's not Barak that defeats 900 chariots. It's not the 10,000 Israelites. It's God. It's verse 15. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots. It's not just by chance that Sisera wanders into a random woman's tent. It is God's doing. Verse 9. The Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. No human could do what needed to be done here. No human can do what needs to be done throughout the book of Judges. No king was ever going to be able to lead Israel like they needed to be led. We ourselves make terrible saviors and fixers of our own life. And that is because our situations and the situations of the world don't need human solutions. They need divine intervention. And that's because the problems and the wars and the sicknesses and the sins of this world are not just physical ones, but they are deeply spiritual ones. All that we see is not all that there is. There is more than just meets the eye. Tim Keller says this. He says, all around us are spiritual situations that are frequently invisible that drive natural events forward. What seems secular is spiritual. What is mundane is monumental. There is more than meets the eye in countless of situations of our life. It's not just something physical. It's something spiritual. As Mark has already said, our hearts are burdened and overwhelmed by what is happening right now. The atrocities that are taking place. The more I've had to take breaks from reading simply because the anger is just getting too much. And what the Hamas has done is evil. They are an enemy that needs to be fought against. What we cannot forget is that there is more to this than just meets the eye. There are spiritual forces of darkness and evil, as Mark has said, that are demonic, that are driving these natural events. And because of that, Human solutions will not ultimately or completely solve this problem, but divine intervention will. Or I think about the millions of babies that are killed every year, or the marriages that are breaking apart at an alarming rate, or the people who are making exoduses out of this faith, or the people who are just coming to church on Sundays but still living for themselves and living for their own wills, or the generational lines of people who are addicted to porn or drugs or other strongholds. And all of these things don't need human solutions or systems or structures. They need divine intervention. They need God moving in all of these places and in all of these people. And Judges provides us with a framework that there is hope of a God who is moving and working through all things and in all things for his people when his people cry out to him. It's a collection of stories of a God who relentlessly offers his grace to those who do not deserve it, who do not seek it, and who do not even appreciate it after they have received it. But he offers it to them because they have cried out to him. The thing that has been standing out to me about not just Judges 4, but the beginning of Judges is the extended period of time that they spend in oppression, enslavement, and bondage. In this case, it's 20 years 
they spend. And we don't have record of the Israelites crying out until year 20 to God. 20 years they sit in bondage, 18 years for Ehud. The, the numbers fluctuate, but what it is showing is that they become complacent and complicit until ultimately they become desperate. They've tried it all themselves. They've taken part in the idol worship. They, they've, they have just, they have worked on project self. They, they've pursued passions of the flesh. They've done all these things, but nothing is satisfying. Nothing is saving them. And so they start to become desperate and they cry out to him. It's not until they realize who he is, what they have forgotten, what they abandoned, and what they no longer have, that they become desperate for him. I think this is a lesson that we need to leave with this morning is to have a desperation for God. John Piper in his book, Hunger for God says, the weakness of our hunger or our desperation or our seeking of God is not because he's unsavory, but because we keep ourselves stuffed with other things. If we are not careful to maintain or somehow manufacture desperation for God in our life, we will become complacent in our seeking of him and and complicit in our obedience to him. We will start to take the foot off of the gas pedal for a second. So I wanna ask this morning, where are you complicit with evil in your life? Where are you complicit with things that are not helpful in your life? Where are you being complacent right now in your life as you follow God? What areas of your life are competing for your attention and for your allegiance? What things are you stuffing yourself with that is making you forget the savoriness of God? What would it look like for you this morning to purge and purify those places in your life that are not wholly devoted and desperate for him? Because friends, if we actually want to see God move and deliver and heal and save and transform, then we have to be a people who are not just crying out on Sundays or who don't cry out half-heartedly or distractedly or doubtfully, but we need to be a people who cry out with our whole being, Jesus, come. We need to be people who are calling out and crying out to the one who alone has the power and grace needed to answer our prayers, to save those who are hurting and to deliver those out of evil. We need to manufacture desperation. God does it in our life. It's called the, 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 the wilderness or whatever else you wanna call it. And it's actually a blessing because he is restoring to us a desperation for him that we wouldn't have otherwise. We need to be a people who are not just devoted, but who are desperately devoted to God because he and he alone has the power. In him rests all power and authority and he is the only one who can save. Would you pray with me? Father.
well up in our hearts right now, desperation. If that means the wilderness, God, even though we don't like praying for those, bring it to us, Father. Because you and you alone are all that matters. Make it so in our hearts. Make us wholly pledged to you. Get rid of all the other things that are competing for our allegiance that we're serving besides you. Get rid of all the other masters. Get rid of all the other idols. Get rid of all the other things that are keeping us from being dependent and devoted and desperate for you. Father, make us desperate so that we're not just Christians part-time, but that we are people who are constantly flowing counter to the current of this world. We are people who are sitting in an anchor that is you and your truth. That we are people who are not thrown about by waves and who don't just sway wherever the wind of culture blows, but we are people who are steadfastly pointed to you. Father, make us pray desperate prayers. And Father, we thank you that you are working for your glory. That you don't need us, but you choose us to work with you. And that we can trust you because you are working for your own glory and nothing else. And that makes you the most trustworthy person. So, Father, build up a desperation in us for you. Come, Holy Spirit, deliver your people. Come, Holy Spirit, deliver us from our bondage. Come, Holy Spirit, heal that which needs to be healed, whether physical or in our heart or in our souls. Come, Holy Spirit, make this a place where people are passionately gathering together to follow you with their whole lives. In your name, in your power, come. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this week's teaching. We hope you have a great week.